So welcome back, everyone. Uh, my name is Michael Frad. I'm the Assistant Program Director at Drisha. Very excited to have folks back for our next class, and your name shall be great, the Abraham Narrative with Rabbi David Silver. Uh, Rabbi Silver is the founder and dean of Drisha. We've been uh, teaching, uh, he's been teaching this course uh, since just after uh, the fall Chagim, I think we started in October at the very beginning of Lech Lecha and have been working our way through the story of Avraham since then, uh, continuing now into the spring. Uh, last time we were uh, focusing in chapter 16, we were talking about the relationships between Avraham, uh, Hagar, Sarai, some of the, some of the material there, and we are going to be picking up again with chapters 15 and 16 today. With that, I think we are ready to get started. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Michael. Okay, yeah, let's just pick up, right, pick up where we left off last time, which is towards the beginning of chapter 16, uh, in verse number um, five. And um, the story is that Sarah has offered her shifra, her slave, as it were, female slave to Avram, as a kind of quasi-wife, the purpose of which is that she will hopefully have a child, and that the child in one form or another will be considered Sarah's child. And this is a, an idea that later we encounter again in the Torah, in chapter 30, with Rachel, who herself was having trouble having children, and she uh, gives her shifcha to Bilha to Yaakov, and in fact, Bilha has two children, and in fact, Rachel sees those children as her own children, because she names the first child Don, God has judged me and given me a child, and in fact, the very act of naming the child is an act of parenthood. So there it actually works perfectly well, but in the story of uh, Hagar and Sarah, Avraham, Ishmael, that's the story that will have a different outcome. Because at the end of the day, Yishmael is certainly not going to be uh, Sarah's child. That's clear. That will become clear even today in chapter 16. So after Hagar gets pregnant, which is immediately after she hands uh, Hagar to Avraham, the Torah says that Sarah became light, became, became something of no consequence in the eyes of Hagar, the language of the Torah, her mistress became kal, light, of little worth. And Sarah complains about it to Abraham. She says, uh, once again, I became light in her eyes. And then she adds at the end of verse number five, fighting words, Yishpot Hashem, may God judge between us. Those are fighting words. You don't say that to your friend, or you say that to one with whom you have a, a dispute, in this case, a bitter dispute. And uh, just to sum up, not to sum up, but to point out that I've been getting all these articles lately. I'm an academia. You get a million, you get one article, you get a million articles. And the last, and once you choose one article, they send you many other articles that are similar because they know everything about you, whoever it is, Facebook, Google, or whatever. 
So uh, in one of the articles, it talked about the rabbinic reconstruction of Sarah and how in the Torah, she comes across as, in the words of this article, petty. I just wanted to say that she's not petty. This is not a petty story. Childless woman for many years, who her husband, uh, perhaps unintentionally, but in point of fact, put her in a terrible situation, taken by Pharaoh, who knows what happened there and for how long. And now she comes back and she magnanimously offers her slave to Abraham as a kind of surrogate mother. I say magnanimously, she has her own self-interest, which is fine. But we have to remember that Abraham himself doesn't have a child. He prayed for a child in chapter 15 for himself. So in point of fact, giving uh, her shifcha, Hagar, to Abraham is a magnanimous gesture as far as Abraham is concerned. And when she makes this suggestion, the Torah says, Vayishma Avram Mekol Sarai, Abraham hearkened, obeyed, hearkened to what Sarah had requested. And as soon as she, this woman gets pregnant, she looks down upon Sarah feels belittled, as the Torah says. And she says it twice, I have become belittled in her eyes. And then she turns to Avram and says, and it's your fault. Chamasi Olecha, the wickedness is your fault. Hamas being a very powerful term in Genesis, and the end, may God judge between me and you. So that's where we left off. I wouldn't call this petty. <clears throat> she may be vindictive in the story, but she's certainly not petty. We can sympathize, I think we're supposed to sympathize with where Sarah finds herself. And as we discussed last week, the term for a cow, to be cow, to be light, is connected to the related term in the beginning of the Abraham narrative, which is the word kaved. Abraham leaves Egypt very kaved, kaved ma'od, kesef. But meanwhile, it, what happened was that he was given all these this wealth, including the female slaves, in return for Sarah being taken. That's where we left off last time. And we'll continue with chapter 16. In verse number, in verse number six, Vayomer uh, Avram al-Sarai, so Avram said to, to Sarai, that's her name, Sarai still, it gets changed in chapter 17. Your slave woman, Shifchatech, is in your hands, in your control. Asila, do whatever you do, what is good in your eyes to her. And what Sarah does is, Vataanea Sarai. Here they translate, in this translation, treated her harshly, Inui, Vativrachmi Ponea, and Hagar runs away. This is an, an interesting verse from several perspectives. The first thing, before we get to the second half of the verse, which of course is crucial, the Inui, uh, I want to get to the first part of the verse, Avram's response. Shifchatech biyodeh, in your control. Asigo hatov biyenayich, do what is good in your eyes. And I want just to reflect a moment on that response. Do what is good in your eyes. Notice, by the way, the expression, do what is good in your eyes, which seems to uh, echo what the Torah says about Hagar. Namely, that after she became pregnant, her mistress became right in her eyes. And in fact, Sarah repeats that in the verse when she speaks to Avram. She says, 
I gave you the shifcha. I became light in her eyes. So we have that expression in her eyes on three occasions, one after the next. Clearly they're connected to each other. But before we get to connection to each other, I just wanted to raise a question about what that says about Avram. His response, do what is good in your eyes. That's an expression that we find here we find it elsewhere in the Bible. We found it, find it more than once in the book of Shmuel, and there it has a different meaning. But here, Asiwa Tobi Einayich, I would, I suggest, uh, does not speak well of Avram in this in this verse. Do what, do whatever you want to her. Strikes me as someone who is not taking responsibility for his for his action. At least as Sarah receive it. What she says to him is. I'm treated very shabbily by, by this woman. And the reason I'm treating shabbily by this woman is because the dog look, looks like his master. Because you treat me shabbily, she treats me shabbily. That's what she's actually saying to him. The response, do whatever you want, do what is good in your eyes, strikes me as not taking full responsibility. You do whatever you want. Whatever you do, you're, you're doing that. Toby and I, you do what you want. So it strikes me that it's a less than satisfactory response. And the larger point over here is that what happens in the immediate verse, Hugger runs away. And the implications of Hugger runs away, we'll see later this morning. Uh, but the Yishmael story, of course, is in this chapter, chapter 16. But we also encountered the story of Hagar and Yishmael again in chapter 21. As a general rule, the Abraham narrative consists of double stories. We will see this over and over again. What to make of the doubles, we will see. Um, so yes, he's leaving it up to her to do the right thing. One could see that from a positive standpoint, but it strikes me that he's not actually taking responsibility. He's not saying, I will, I will, I will straighten it out. Says you straighten it out, yeah. Maybe I can straighten it out. She doesn't straighten it out very well. But her point is, you straighten it out because you know what, honey, you are the one who caused the problem in the first place. You caused it. You solve it. So that's what she's saying. His answer, you solve it, strikes me as abdication. That's the first point. And now the second point is, of course, so we remarked already last week that you read this first verse of chapter 16 that Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne no children. And she had a Egyptian slave woman. Her name was Hagar. And we pointed out last week that verse number one tells us two things about this woman. Number one, that she's a shifcha, she's a slave. And number two, her name, Hey Gimel Reish, which really is Hagar. But in point of fact, the unvocalized Hebrew could equally be read as Hagar, the stranger. Given the fact that in the previous chapter, the conditions, the commitments made by Abraham's descendants to enter into the covenant are the threefold conditions of Ger, Eved, and Inui. This is a woman in chapter 16, following immediately upon the covenant, that has two of the three conditions built in. She is in fact a slave 
which is the female Ebed. And in fact, she is a Ger, she's Egyptian, but the Torah makes it clear she is in fact a Ger. Her name is the Ger. So all that's missing to give her a covenantal opportunity is Inui. The reader sort of knows in verse number one, there's a strong chance we will encounter Inui, and here it is. In verse number six, Batanela Sarai, Batirach Miponela, Sarah, they translate, treated her harshly. Inui is a very negative term, often sexual. Here it's not sexual, presumably, but it's related to marriage in the sense of the anger of Sarah as she feels that she's been belittled, that her place within the family, because the whole point was that Sarah will have a child. Maybe it's the child of Hagar and Sarah, but it's also Sarah's child. And here, what she understands is that from Hagar's perspective, it's not Sarah's child, it's Hagar's child. And there's the anger and the Inui. I wanted to say something about the Inui and then I'll stop for a moment and take comments or questions. The Inui, Geirut Avdetun Inui, the covenantal terms of chapter 15. So the claim that I made last week is that the, the covenant essentially those who enter into the covenant live out Abraham's life. In other words, in chapter 12, Abraham goes down to Egypt <clears throat> and they are mistreated in Egypt. And in chapter 14, we have the symbolic possession of the land. The covenant is all about that. It's about the suffering, three generations of suffering, and then in the fourth generation shall return to the land, essentially reflecting, mirroring the Abraham narrative, which began in chapter 12, 13, and 14. If we accept that premise, then we ask ourselves the question, where do we find the game with the Avdut and the Inui? And the answer to that has to be, we don't find those terms in chapter 12. But we do find somebody who's a candidate for game with Avdut and Inui, and it's not Abraham. It's rather Sarah, who is a gear like Abraham, a foreigner in a foreign land, and then she's taken captive. And it's clear that she isn't necessarily going to be freed from captivity. And the captivity has a sexual side to it, a non-consensual sexual side that often in the Torah is called Inui. So the person who actually underwent Geirut, Avdut, and Inui, and that becomes recast in terms of Geirut, Avdut, and Inui is actually Sarah herself. And here what we have is something we often see in life, that the people who were the victims, who suffered, were the victims, sometimes they behave similarly towards somebody else. So which of course ends any possibility of this situation actually working out properly, as we'll see. But here it's a situation that we have certainly seen uh, in human history and probably in contemporary history as well, that sometimes people that are mistreated remarkably behave exactly the same way towards someone else. So that's what we have over here. But Tanel Sarai, I believe in the Torah, I know anybody is negative. I have no question about that. And that's what she does out of her anger. And I think it further, I think, supports what I said a few minutes ago about Avram's behavior here. Do whatever you want to this, this woman who's extraordinarily angry, 
I don't think it's the right answer. Do whatever you want. It might have been, let's think about what we should do. Here's a plan. Let's just not, hey, do whatever you want, which is an act of abdication. I would add one other point and I'll stop. Well, two points. Then I'll take some comments and questions. Then in the book of Shmuel, when somebody says, do whatever you want, in the book of Shmuel, I'm not going to get to the examples, but I think it's true and safe for Shmuel. And when, for example, Saul wants to do something and the people say, do whatever you want, that means there and elsewhere in the book of Shmuel, bad idea. Don't do it. So um, don't do it. So that's what it means over there. Do whatever you want. We often encounter that. I, I want to do something. Do whatever you want. Do whatever you want means terrible idea. I probably can't stop you. Do what you want. So that's over here. It means, I think, do what you want. It's not my problem. It's your problem. Though we cause the problem. Ataneo Sarai, a negative, a negative action on Sarah's part. And then Vativrahmi Poneha, she runs away. I'll come back to the running away later in the chapter. So I'll stop at this point for a moment. If anybody has comments or questions, please speak up. Uh, we had a couple questions come through in the chat that I yes. just want to make sure we we um, go into. Uh, yes, go ahead. One, uh, one of them is is kind of just go, going over uh, how Sarah could consider Yishmael to be her son uh, if the child is born to Hagar and like is the lineage going according to the father? Uh, is something else going on here? Uh, no, it strikes me that, yeah, it strikes me that when she says, I will be built up through her, she makes it quite clear that literally, which both plays on the words to build, and also the word bane, which is a son or a child, that her thinking is this Hagar will be the biological mother, but we'll both, we'll, we'll both be parents. Exactly how that's going to work, how they share this motherhood is a good question. We have other situations. We have the situation of Rachel, and we have another situation where the child is considered the child of two different people. And of course, that's in the very beautiful book of Ruth, where the book of Ruth ends, it's Ruth's child. Boaz is the father, Ruth is the mother. And then at the end of the book, the, Naomi takes the child and, and takes care of the child, Omenet. And the, and the women all say, you are Ben Lenami, a child is born to Naomi. So then we have another example of kind of joint parenthood. So I think that Sarah's thinking, she pretty much says it, she'll be the biological mother, but I'll also be a mother. Maybe I'll be the primary mother. It's not just a surrogate uh, mother, it's her slave. Let's not forget that. In point of fact, whatever you think of slavery, I presume most of us don't like it, but it's a given in the Torah. Yes, the Torah moves, tries to move to some extent away from slavery, that's all true, Abraham has slaves, and Sarah has a slave. He has many slaves, actually. So I don't think it's a standard case. What the so-called rules are in the Torah in terms of lineage, that's a very good question beyond the scope of our study here. But uh, that's an interesting question, how the lineage works. I don't think it works through the mother, let me put it that way. But that's a more complicated question. What else do you have for me? Any other questions? I have a question. Uh, yes. Um, looking at the Hebrew, right under Asila Hatov Be'enayich, 
It says, "Vim tsaamal achadonai el ein hamayin b'midbar al ha'ayin." Is there any significance to ayin and ayin, which is the spring where she meets the angel, and hatov be'enai? What do you think? I, I'm assuming there is. Of course, there is. Obviously, <laughs> we have to see what it is. It certainly is, as we'll see. It's one of the dominant themes of the chapter. But exactly how to understand it is a good question, but I think you notice something very important. Clearly, and it's not just this verse, it comes up later as well. Mm -hmm. Parenthetically, of course. Those are the things we notice, and then the question is how to interpret them. Mm -hmm. So for sure, the spring is called an ayin, and it appears twice in the very next verse. But we will get to that. Thank you for the comment, and we will deal with that shortly and throughout the chapter, actually. Uh, anything else? Uh, we had a couple more in the chat. Uh, one is, uh, could this scene between Avram and Sarai give some some color to her laugh on hearing that she, as well, will eventually be bearing a child? Uh, we also have a question about whether in verse 4, uh, when, it's, when it says, Yishpot Hashem Beni Uvenecha, whether uh, we could potentially play with that as referring to not just uh, between the two of us, but also a, a play on your son. I don't know about that. It's an interesting question. Um, what was the first point? The first, the first comment you had? Uh, the first question was whether the scene here, what the interplay between the scene here might be with the scene later when uh, Sarai laughs when hearing that she will be bearing a child. Okay, we'll get to the laughter later because in point of fact, Sarah laughs in chapter 18, Abraham laughs in chapter 17. God informs them that the name the child will be called Yitzchak. So laughter actually, and the child is Yitzchak with a major He's the covenantal inheritor of, of Abraham and Sarah. So the question is, what role laughter plays in the story in general? Uh, that's something we'll have to confront later. That's that's a very one of the central. That's a central point in the in the story. I don't question? connect this specifically oh, to the verse over here. We'll, we'll reflect on that when we get to the laughter later on. Question. Okay. Yes. Um, it, it it would seem to me that it's possible, and I'm wondering what you think of this. That um, that that this that this story is meant, in fact, to illuminate that in regard to the formation of a covenantal people, the uh, the 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 three elements are not casual. They're not. They're they're actually they're actually um, understandable in some in some manner. So Inoy here would be meant, uh, presumably, as a character corrective. And that's how we should see the, the, the requirement in regard to the formation of the covenantal people as a function of Enoi before they are upon their release to be God's people. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. And I'll come back to that later on. I think that is true. And I think we have to wait a bit because Enoi will come up later in this, uh, in this chapter. We'll get to it hopefully this morning. But that's a good comment and we will, I'll address it uh, more in a few minutes when we get to further on in the chapter. Let's just go through the chapter now and we will, let's see what goes on. So she, so first of all, she runs away. Haga runs away. She escapes. Now she's a, she's, a, she's a pregnant woman who's running away. And now we have the following. Our ayin b'derech shua. 
So the angel of God finds her by a spring. The word spring is in ayin. And of course, ayin is related to the word ayin means an eye. And it appears twice in the verse, as you pointed out very nicely. And I would add to what you said, by the way, not only does the word ayin appear twice in verse seven, but in addition to that, where does the angel find her? Bederech Shur, on the road to Shur. Now, what does Shur mean in the Torah? What does Lashur mean in the Torah? Biblical Hebrew, actually, in the Torah. Bilam had in one of his blessings, Ereno Vloata, his last blessing. I see them, but not now. I look into the future. As the verse continue, Ashurenu Vlokarov. Ashurenu. Ashurenu means I will see them. See. So the word sure, lashur, means to see, actually. So it's not just that the word ayin appears twice, which is to see, which probably does play on inui, which is a different word. But in this chapter, this verse is very significant because the idea of seeing will be a central, central theme in chapter 16. And to emphasize that, the Torah talks about bederech shur. I'll give you another example where the Bible does something very similar. And that's coming back to the book of Shmuel. If you remember the story where Saul is commissioned by his father, his father asks him to find some animals that are missing. So Saul sets out to find these animals. And uh, he travels here, he travels there, and he can't find the animals. He's traveling with a young man, a nar, travels with him. And finally, they're traveling and traveling, and Saul says to his young man, we better go home, because we had been away such a long time that my father will stop worrying about the animals, gonna worry about me. Um, where, where is the place in which Saul says this to the young man? Hemabo Eretz Tzuf. They come to the land of Tzuf. Let me find that verse in my uh, Tanakh here. I believe it's chapter 9 of First Samuel. Let me just find that verse. Hemabo Eretz Tzuf is chapter 9 of First Samuel, verse 5. They came to the land of Tzuf. And Saul said to his young man, we better go back. Your father's going to start worrying about us. And the young fellow says to him, no, let's not go back here. In this town, there's a man of God, Ish Elohim, very, very important person. Let's go and ask him. So Shaul says to the young man, what can we give him? He assumes you got to pay this man to give you, to tell the truth. We have no food. And we have no gift. A tishura is a gift. We have no gift to give him. We have nothing. And um, and the, the young man says to him, don't worry, I have, I have some money. Don't worry about the money, I'll pay it. Then suddenly the book, the writer, the voice says, in those days, Israel, in olden times, in verse number nine of First Samuel chapter nine, when so somebody would say, we wanted to go visit the man of God, the prophet or whatever, let's go to the seer. Let's go to the ro'eh. For in those days, they called the Navi the Ro'eh. And here you have typical artistry of the book of Shmuel. Saul wants to find the missing animals. So he wants to go back home. The place 
in which he finds himself, where he turns to the young man and says, let's, let's go back home, is Eretz Tzuf. But what is a Tzofe? What is Eretz Tzuf? Tzofe is what he sees, a lookout. He comes to the land of, of, of vision. And that's when this guy says, let's go home. So the young fellow with him says, what are you talking about? There's a holy man in this town. Says Saul, Uman Navi Laish, the word Navi. What, what can we bring him? <laughs> right? We have no tishura. What is Lashur? To see. And then the, the and then the, then the narrator says, This holy man, in those days, today we call him a Navi, but in those days we call him one who sees. Now, what, what is the point of that, of course? The question always is, what is the point? It's not our cleverness in seeing this. First you see it, then you it's very simple, that if all the people in the world, the guy who understands the least about prophecy, his name is Saul, the son of Kish. Not a bad fellow, but when it comes to vision, to seeing, to prophecy, the young, the young fellow he takes with him, his young associate, goes 10,000 times more than Saul. And that sets up, of course, the story of Saul meeting Samuel, and Samuel wants to convert this guy into a prophet, Agam Ban Viim strikes us as a very peculiar way to deal with Saul. But I've given an example of where the vision is in the text, but it's, it's subtle. But when you see it, it's, it's obvious. Over here, it's obvious as well. And then the top shur. In the place of vision, we find this woman who runs away. And I would say we all understand why she might run away. I understand very well why she might run away, but um, she runs away and she finds herself in a place of vision and the angel of God finds her, encounters her. The angel is encountering her. So God is taking a kind of, God is acting in a kind of uh, preemptory manner. And actually we can understand why God is acting in a kind of preemptory manner because this woman, is both a Ger and an Evid and as Inui. So in a sense, she has fulfilled or potentially has fulfilled all the covenantal terms. So we understand very well like that the angel would then approach her. And let's see what the angel says. The angel says, the angel speaks, Hagar Shifchat Sarai, Addresses her as the slave of Sarai. Hagar, you slave of Sarah. Sarah's slave. I'll call her Sarah, even though she's still Sarai, but Sarah's slave. Amy Zebot Viana Telechi. From where do you come and where are you going? And she said, I run away from Sarah, my mistress. Now, a couple of comments about this verse. The angel actually, first of all, the angel is God's representative, Allah Hashem. When God asks questions, the question is always, are they really questions? Because we have to presume that God knows the answer. From where are you coming and where are you going is not, so is it a question? Is it just an invitation to speak? Or is, it, is there a kind of muted critique over here? And what's interesting is, that's one question. What's interesting is that the angel actually has two questions. From where are you running and where are you going? And Hagar answers the first question. 
Her answer is, I'm running away from Sarah, my mistress. But the question that Hagar doesn't answer is, where are you going? And we understand the answer where she's going. It's a very simple, it's a one word answer. The answer is nowhere. She's not going anyplace. She's running from someplace. And the question is, is that a critique or not? It's an old dispute I had with a very good friend of mine in Israel for many years about this verse. And his point, and he could be right about it, is that sometimes you gotta, sometimes you're in a situation, you gotta leave. You don't have a plan yet. But you know one thing, you gotta get out of that place. And that's what Hagar is saying. Hagar is saying, in effect, I have no plan. I'm going nowhere, but I can't stand to be where I am. Anochi borachat. That's one way to read the verse. And the other way to read the verse is that there is an implicit critique over here when you're running away. You think it's so terrible. Are you sure that where you're running to is any better? Because you're not, you're not really going anyplace. What does that mean? So I'm running away. I don't have a plan, but I'm running away. That's what Hagar says. And in verse number nine, the angel says, so the angel instructs her, angel of God, Malach Hashem, return to your mistress. Here we have the Inui word again. And submit yourself to Inui. And we, the reader, our first instinct is to say, why would you want to do such a thing? Why would you want to submit yourself to Inui? That sounds very strange to make that request of somebody to put yourself in a situation where there is Inui. But perhaps the answer is given the context of the story, given the fact that Inui is that missing condition to become covenantal. Maybe what the angel of God is actually saying is, listen, this is an opportunity for you. Don't see it as just misery. See it as a kind of opportunity. In point of fact, it is that way. Geirut, Abdet, and Inui are both very difficult situations, but they're also covenantal preconditions. So that, for example, later in this very book, Yaakov sojourn in the house of Lavan, which after 20 years, he feels has been fairly miserable, mistreated, not paid properly, men invades his house, etc., etc., etc. But Yaakov defines that experience as Geirut, Abdut, and Inuit. And if he defines it covenantally, now we defined it after 20 years covenantally. It's not that he understood it the whole time that way. He may have understood it as punishment, punishment for misbehavior, punishment for tricking your blind father, punishment for taking advantage of your tired brother, et cetera, et cetera, punishment for deception. And it is actually that as well, but it also may be covenantal opportunity. So here when the angel says, go back and submit yourself to Inuit, this I think strengthens the point that the context of this story is actually the covenant, which is preceded chapter 16. The Torah spelled it out. Avram said, what are the conditions? Tell you, Geirut, Avdut, and Inui are the preconditions. So now the angel is giving you the opportunity. Because look, Mrs. Slave, Hagar, Shifchat, Sarayat, you're a Ger and you're a Shifcha. All you need is the Inui. Go back and accept it. And what is the response? So the next verse, Verse number 10 begins exactly the same way. And in fact, if you look at the verses, you will see that verse 11 begins the same way as well. 
So there's no response after verse nine, and there's no response after verse 10. So the question that the commentaries asked, we asked the same question, why did the Torah begin each verse with the words, given the fact that Malach Hashem is the only one speaking? The Torah could have said, but no, the Torah has seen fit to begin each of the verses with So different commentaries have different opinions about it. But the one that I feel is, in this case, certainly, and elsewhere, very um, sensible, is that you have the introduction in these verses, even though it's one speaker, in situations where a response might have been anticipated. By including, by studying by Hashem, what the Torah is doing is highlighting the fact that there is no response. One might have expected Hagar to say, if you say so, God, I have to put my trust in you. I know it's unpleasant, but if you tell me to do this, it must be for a good reason, and I accept what you say. But instead, what we have is her silence, which in this case is clearly not acceptance. She ignores it. She has no interest in being abused by her mistress. And frankly, I don't think any of us, any of us blame her. But given the context of it, what she's saying is, I'm sure there's a wonderful reward. I have total faith in you. And my answer is, no, thank you. I'm not interested in Inui. That's not my saying. I don't want Inui. That's why I ran away. And I have no intention of going back to submit myself to more Inui. So the angel then comes back with, sweetens the offer. The angel sweetens the offer. If you go back, I will make your descendants many, too many to count. And that expression, too many to count, when you read verse number 10, you can't help but remember chapter 15, the beginning of chapter 15, right? Abraham said to God, what will you give me? I have no successor, I have no heir. And God took Abraham outside and said to Abraham, look towards the heavens and count the stars. Can you count the stars? Can you number the stars? Of course not. So will your descendants be, so many. So what the angel was saying to Hagar then in verse number 10 is precisely what God said to Abraham in the previous chapter, the introduction to the covenant. There's a great promise at the other end of the covenant. In other words, go back and submit yourself to Enoi. Not, not interested. But if you do this, then there's a great blessing involved. Take that into consideration before you answer. And then we have the silence again after verse number 10. She says nothing. What she says is, I already gave you my answer. Not Rabbi? interested. What about no, don't you understand? That's what Hagar is saying in effect. So now, now we come to verse number 11. And then after that, I'll take some comments and questions. So the angel of God said again, behold, you are, here they translate, you are with child. 
Hinachara, they take as you are with child. Hinachara, actually, when you read it, if you didn't know the story, you wouldn't translate you are with child. You would translate you will be with child. Hinachara, and you will give birth. And you will name the child Yishmael. God hears. Kishama Hashem for God has paid heed to your Inui. Before I take the comments, this I think is a very important verse. I know they're all important, but for our purposes, this is a very important verse. And um, I would say one thing. What the angel is saying to, what God is saying to Hagar is that if you go back, when you go back, two things. First of all, Shema Hashem God has paid heed to your, to, to your Inui. That means, in effect, there won't be Inui. You can go back without the Inui because God has already, God has paid attention. God has paid, God has literally heard your Inui. That's point number one. And point number two, very importantly, you will name the child, which means it's going to be your child. Lest you think that going back there means you'll go back to the preconditions of Sarah, that Ibonemi Mena. Lest you think that, that's not the case. I understand what you're saying. You don't want to submit to the Inui because submitting to the Inui means you're under the control of Sarah. Let me tell you something. You're not under the control of Sarah because you're going to name the child. The naming of the child is going to be your child, Yishmael. And the very name reflects your experience, namely your Inui. So in point of fact, what's very striking is that the Inui, which is which she is subjected to by Sarah, uh, is the very Inui that prevents the child that's going to be born from being Sarah's child. <laughs> because it's called Shema Shabu Anyech. Your Inui means God has heard you and you will name the child, not Sarah's child. In verse 11, Sarah is out of the picture. Abraham may still be in the picture in verse 11, but Sarah is out of the picture. Now we'll take comments and questions, but I want to say one thing. I do not mean by any, in any manner, shape or form to excuse the behavior of, uh, of Hagar. The Torah does not intend to say that Hagar is a, a virtuous woman in her, in her behavior. At the end of the day, belittling the woman who given the given the givens of the of the of the, of the text, given the givens of the text, uh, you know, Sarah is a, a woman, a person who has suffered. So you don't belittle someone who has suffered, and frankly, has done you a favor as well, because when she gives her shifcha to Abraham, she may remain the shifcha of Sarah, but suddenly she has an elevated status. She's the kind of wife of Abraham, maybe called an Amma. An Amma is more than a Shifcha. So in effect, what Sarah has done, given the situation, okay, we don't like slavery, but it's a given in the story, she's elevated the role of Hagar. Uh, she has suffered plenty herself. She has magnanimously offered this woman to Abraham, which is not easy to do. So Hagar's behavior is very problematic. The belittling is very problematic. Having said all that, if we ask ourselves the questions, at the end of the day, Yishmael will not be uh, Sarah's child, for sure. And it won't even be Abraham's primary child either. And if we ask ourselves the questions, which we will ask, 
and plenty of questions in chapter 21, the sister chapter, who is to blame for the story of Yishmael? Uh, the answer is everybody. Yishmael is mitzachek, he's a taunter. The mother looked down upon Sarah, vatekal, which is very similar. Abraham's story in Mitzrayim, and his behavior is problematic, and Sarah calls him out on it in spades. And Sarah, Inui, Inui is never acceptable. So therefore, who's guilty? Everybody, they're all guilty. And what you have at the end of the day is a situation where Yishmael is gonna be expelled. And that's a tragedy. It shouldn't have had to happen, but it does happen. So verse number 11 is actually a very important verse. Now we'll be happy to take comments, questions or whatever. Uh, okay, so. Just a quick comment, if I may. It's comparing to life in today's society, especially in America, uh, Hagar didn't say what maybe she was thinking, which is what we, people would say today, forget the future generation, what's in it for me? And she doesn't say it out loud, but that's today's thinking. Well, that is actually thinking in the book of Breshit as well, because the point that I was, one of the main points that I was trying to make when we did chapter 15 about the, about the covenant, I'll repeat it again, it, to me it's a very central point. It's not just that in order to be covenantal, there, was, there, there are three generations of suffering, of threefold suffering of Gabriel, Abdet, and Inui. But the main point I was pushing for is that the way the covenant is set up in chapter 15, that the fourth generation, which possesses the land, never suffered. The three generations which suffered don't possess the land. So it's not just what's in it for me. The answer is in the covenantal formula, nothing is in it for you except What's in it for you is you set up the future. If you want to be part of, if you're willing to 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 forego your own your own uh, positive experiences, you're willing to put up with the suffering because you understand that that's how you build this covenantal people, that children, grandchildren, other generations, that were part of and were part of one covenantal family. If you're willing to do that, you can enter into the covenant. The person who does it in Genesis is Yaakov. Esau doesn't want it. Esau lives for the moment. He's not a bad guy. We'll get to Esau hopefully someday. He's not bad. He has a problematic side to him. Yishmael is not bad. That doesn't mean he's a perfect soul. No one's perfect in this book. But the point is, he's, he's uninterested. Hagar's not interested. And neither are 99.99% of the world interested in this kind of a covenant. He actually understand it. To live a difficult life terrible suffering because you believe in something and you're willing to set it up for the future. That is what this covenant is all about. So I'm not saying it's, it's we, we, the, the book is written in such a way, Breshit, that we all bemoan the fact that Jacob stole Esau's blessing. I'm not saying his behavior was not deceptive, but in point of fact, let's not forget that Esau doesn't, is not interested in the blessing that Yaakov takes. He has no interest in it on any level and Esau in Genesis is an incredibly successful man. He does own a country. He doesn't just own some property, he owns a country. He travels around with a vast army every place he goes, unlimited power, unlimited success. And we feel sorry for Jacob because the book is so ingenious that it allows us to feel sorry for him. Whereas Jacob says about his own life, my years are few and miserable, he's the hero. That's the way this book works. So yes, of course it's true. And Hagar is us basically. Hagar is a normal person who says, I'm not interested in the Inuit, I put up with it, it's not for me. 
I don't want to be persecuted in my life. I want to live a life. The angels will go back. Take, the angel is giving her the opportunity and she says, thank you, no thank you. Okay, you suffered plenty, you'll be rewarded for the suffering that you had already. And the child will be your child. Go back under those conditions. Okay, but my point is that on some level, it's a rejection of the covenant. That's the main point I'm trying to make it at this point. There are other points in the chapter we'll get to. Anybody else with comments or questions? Yeah, we had a couple things come through in the chat as well. Um, I, I I missed one earlier, kind of going back to the Go beginning of the parak, but uh, going back to verse three, uh, the idea that Sarai gives Hagar to Abraham as a as a wife potentially sounds a bit ambivalent in terms of you know what exactly is that status um is is there ambivalence there in that relationship uh, a couple other questions that came no, I, let me answer that one first i think the ambivalence is that she is the shifra of sarah but she's the amma or quasi-wife of abraham so that is trying to call it ambivalence i would say that look i think what's great about these stories is that they're all so nuanced. Um, these relationships are, relationships are difficult in general, but the more complicated they are, the more difficult they are to navigate. You have the very same woman who's, her, who's her Sarah's shifcha, but Abraham's kind of wife. And that is, it puts that person in a very strange place. Now again, we don't, we don't justify, the Chumash does not justify not in terms of Hagar, but Sarah's initial complaint is not against Hagar. It's against Abraham. We're not trying to sugarcoat this story over here or any of the stories in Genesis. That would be disrespectful to the Torah if we try to do that. And we have to be very respectful for the Torah. So that would be disrespectful. The Torah, no, it does not attempt to, those are, you know, if we use that language, I mean, I would use that kind of language, but I can hear what she's saying, you know. You blankety blank. That's what she's saying to him. Hamas is wickedness. And may God judge between us. You can only imagine what, she, what she's saying. The fact of the matter is, yes, the situation in which Hagar finds herself is a difficult one. Um, yeah, it's a difficult situation because people, it's not something that Sarah would normally want to do, or anybody would, to, uh, to, to bring a rival into your, into your household. Those, those are the stories of Genesis, the stories of Jacob and his wives, and stories of how do you navigate very difficult situations. And I'm sure most of us have been, or maybe all of us, at one point or another, these kind of difficult situations, you make choices, and sometimes there is no perfect answer. You make, hopefully, the, the least bad choice, but that's what this is about. So, I, yes, I would say that's, that's part of the power of the story. What else do you got for me? Uh, a couple more in here. Uh, one of them is why exactly does Hagar merit this reward to get so many children? Uh, and then there's kind of combining a few different observations and questions. Uh, why do we treat Hagar's silence uh, as this kind of refusal? Could it not also be either, you know, like silence is equivalent to acknowledging or accepting, or could it be that this is a, a negotiating tactic that involves her actively becoming 
worthy of or, or actively working toward fulfilling the covenantal conditions, uh, but potentially a, a more active approach to, to accepting some of these things as opposed to rejecting Well, but, but put it this way, I don't see it as her agreeing because the angel keeps speaking. Uh, what do you call it a negotiating tactic, which could be, because one negotiating tactic is sometimes you say nothing and the per other person keeps talking and sweetening the offer. So I said, go back and suffer. If, well, if you do this, I will give you many, 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 you know, descendants. That's part of the chapter 15. And then the, no answer. And then the angel says, you know something? The child will be yours. And I think the response to what, why she merits it is, I would say two things. First of all, we don't know much about this woman. So we, it's hard to give a, there's no, the Torah doesn't disclose a full picture of Hagar. We know what the Torah tells us. But I think the focus on in verse 11 of the last four words, Shema Hashem Yech. I think the fact that you suffer in the Torah, that you are the victim of suffering, I think that entitles you to something in the Torah. I think that, uh, you know, you have it in the Chumash with in the Exodus. The children of Israel, whatever we think of them, God remembers God's covenant. Bayaret on Yom. God is cognizant of the suffering. And that's the first thing God says to Moses in the burning bush. I've seen the suffering. So the Oni, the Inui, and that's what allows us to be freed from slavery. So I would say that, um, you know, I think that the fact that she's a stranger, she's a foreigner, uh, probably given by Pharaoh to Abraham and Sarah, um, and she, you know, she's a shifra, she's a slave. These, these things are things that in the Torah doesn't entitle you to, to something, entitles you to be treated more fairly. I think it comes, it's part of the larger idea of suffering in the Torah, that the idea of suffering is presumably that it is educational. I think that's what uh, Rabbi Blumberg was talking about before, like, uh, Shmuel was mentioning, that the Inui over here is a precondition to the to the blessing the same way it's a precondition to the covenant in chapter 15. So I would say Shema Shemor and Yech is the that's the direction that I would go in. Is there any, I think Naomi had a question. Yeah, thanks. I, I'm just wondering, are you suggesting if Hagar had, had made different choices that Yishmael really would have been the covenantal son and it would have gone through him? Well, I'm suggesting that the Torah suggests that as a possibility. It's very hard to know what might have happened in a text if someone had said otherwise, unless the text spells it out, because that's how not how texts work. You know, we we have what we're given, but I would say yes. I would say that what the Torah is after over here is that Hagar is implicitly rejecting the covenant, the covenant. She's rejecting it for exactly what we can, you know, what's inferred from, from the text, which mm -hmm. is she has no interest in the Inuit. Right. At which point the angel says at the end, okay, God has heard your suffering. That is to say, there won't be further Inuit. Go back and accept the submit to the suffering and the Shema Shem, you don't have to submit to the suffering. And on the contrary, this child will not be her child. It's going to be just your child. And then the proof of it is that you're going to name the child. The naming is an act of parenthood. Now there's something have, else in this verse that's very interesting. But it could have, it could have been different. Yeah, that's what I think the Torah is has been made and not accepted. I think mm -hmm. that's the point over here. Uh -huh. by, okay. ja by, Jacob, by Jacob, we already have multiple female conduits of the covenant. It's not a problem. 
Right. They're certainly part of the covenant. That is true. And we'll get hopefully get to Jacob someday. There's something but, else over here about this verse. Can I interject a question? I'm so, I'm so sorry. No, no. That, 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 was, that was wrong on my part. And I please, please continue, please. Okay. please. Please. I'm continuing. Okay. Now, there's something else about verse number 11 that we have to pay attention to. And I'll put it out there, something to think about. And that is the following. There is something very strange about verse number 11. You will name him Yishmael, Kishama Hashem El Onyer. The translator here says, God has paid heed to your suffering. What's interesting is that in the Torah, probably in the Bible, I didn't check it out, but in the Torah, when the Torah speaks about Inui, the verb that always accompanies Inui is seen. Always. Vayaret onyenu, we have it in the Haggadah. in the burning bush. Um, you have it with, with Leah, actually, it's very striking. Leah names her children. The, the wives name their children. Jacob doesn't name any of his children, except for Benjamin. He changes the name. But outside of that, Jacob is not naming a single child. And when Leah names her first two children, the first child she names Ruvain. And she names the child Ruvain, end of chapter 29. God has seen on ye. God has seen my suffering. And the second child, she names Shimon, for she says, Shema Hashem Anochi, God heard that I have unbeloved or hated. So there, when she names the child Ruvain, it's Ra'a Hashem Be'onyi. Onyi, Inui, always takes the verb to see, with one exception. It's the only exception I could find in the Torah, which is this verse. Shama Hashem El Onyech, God has heard, here they translate, paid heed, El Onyech to your suffering. There's something else I want to add before I, we can reflect on this, that when Leah speaks about the Inuit, she says, Ra Hashem, she doesn't say et onye. She says, Ra Hashem bi onye. That's the end of chapter 29. Ra Hashem bi onye. And elsewhere, it's et on ye. That's the accusative. But Elias said something different. So the question is, is there a difference between the old be only and the old only? And here we have something different, which is shama Hashem And here we come back to the comment that was made earlier, uh, back in the verse after she, after Hagar runs away, and the comment that was made uh, that the angel of God found her, so you pointed out that twice have the word ayin, I, and I added not just the word I, but bederech shur, shur is to see. So vision, the angel finds her by a place of vision, by a place of vision, a place of seeing. But what's very strange is that the response to Hagar is not about seeing, but the response is about hearing. And the very name of the child is Ishmael. God, God, God will hear or God hears. So the question is what to make of that. I, I'm gonna park that question now. 
But these are the things that, the first thing is to notice things in the chapter, and then we can hypothesize what it might be about. So I had two questions. The main one, the idea of hearing and seeing, which of course is obvious in the chapter, but then there's also the interesting Rosh and B on ye, as opposed to on ye. That's another interesting point. Leah said, God has seen B on ye. Okay, let me, well, I don't have a watch. What, what time is it now? Uh, it's 11. 11, so we have 15 minutes, go to 11.15. Um, I'll take a couple of brief comments now and then we'll continue. Anybody has something brief to say? Yeah, by, by verse 11, I'm confused. By verse 11, I would think that actually Hagar has succeeded in her negotiation through silence and she already has qualified under, under Oni as well. Um, God acknowledges that. So why at the end of the day, then in the proceeding of, in, as the story proceeds from there, why, why is she not then part of the covenant? I would say because what the angel has said, look, I don't have God's calculus, but what's clear is God says, go back and accept the suffering, go back and accept the only. And I think that I would say the following, though I'd have to demonstrate this. But I believe that it's not just a matter of suffering. I believe the point about Yaakov, who is Israel, who is the covenantal hero of the book of Genesis. I mean, Abraham's a hero too, but Yaakov is, the, I would say, the primary character. He's Israel. It's not just that Jacob suffers his life, but that Jacob, at the end of his life, when he goes down to Mitzrayim, he goes down to Mitzrayim knowing what awaits him. He knows what awaits him because he's actually suffered that precise way already. Because he suffered in the house of Lavan and the suffering in Mitzrayim and the suffering in the house of Lavan are representing the Chumash as being identical. So it's not just that he suffers, but he actually accepts the suffering. And I think the point over here is when the angel said to Hagar, go back and, 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 and accept the suffering. That's what she refuses to do. She has suffered and that entitled us entitles her to a lot, but it's not somebody who willingly knows what lies ahead and accepts it. On the contrary, she rejects the future suffering and that disqualifies her from as being covenantal as opposed to Yaakov, who actually accepts it when he goes down. Maybe someday we'll get there, but that's, that'll be my response over here. Anybody else? Okay, so let's, let's continue. We've got about 12 minutes or so. Now the angel continues to speak. Here they translate, he'll be a wild ass of a man. Pera Adam. His hand against everyone and everyone's against him. Doesn't sound like a covenantal person to me. He will dwell along, alongside all of his kinsmen. Now this is actually an interesting verse. It's not the most positive description necessarily. A Pera means he lives in the desert. He's going to dwell in the desert. You have to go in the ways of the desert. But I would say that actually the end of the verse is also interesting. He will dwell amongst his brethren, suggests to me also that he's not covenantal. Because remember that the covenant is all about the succeeding generations being gear, being strangers. And the fourth generation returns to the land. But this child, who's a para Adam, whose hand is against all, and all hands against him. But furthermore, 
he's going to be secure in his place. He will dwell amongst his brethren. This verse actually has an echo later with Yishmael. And not only with Yishmael, the verse is actually interesting for a different reason. So let me have a short digression and comment on this verse, verse number 12, from a different verse in the book of Breshit. Later on in Breshit, towards the end of the book, the main character at the end of Breshit, for the most part, beginning already in chapter 37, is none other than Yosef. Joseph is, of course, the, the main character, I would say, together with Yaakov and Yehuda's there too, but Yosef is certainly a main, if not the main character in the last quarter of the book of Breshit. And Yosef is one who cannot get along with his brothers. He talks against his brothers. It's interesting the degree to which the Chumash emphasizes how one speaks about the other. You have it with, uh, with Yosef, of course. You have it with Nishmael. He's mitzachek. He mocks his brother, he taunts his brother. And that again ends up getting him banished from the, from, 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 from the family. That's Yishmael of chapter 21, we'll get there. And with Yosef, he's also, he brings back evil report of the brothers. He tells the brothers his dreams, which are very hurtful to them. Whatever we make of that, and he engenders a lot of animosity. And later in the Chumash, he's even called the Mitzachek in the story of Mrs. Potiphar, in which he may be an innocent victim. In short, the character of Joseph reminds us, among other things, of the character of Yishmael. And in point of fact, and the Ramban noted, that when Joseph is banished from the family and sent down to Mitzrayim, it's none other than Yishmael who actually brings him down there. There are no accidents in the biblical text. So Yishmael brings the Yishmael-like character down. So from one perspective, you might see Joseph as Ishmael, kind of Ishmael figure, which is true to a certain amount. He also ends up in the desert with no water, as did Ishmael. So the stories are very similar. On the other hand, Yosef is not Ishmael. And what's interesting is when the brothers are sitting eating their seven-course meal, while Joseph, a few feet away, is crying out from a pit which has no water, and they see a caravan of traders in the desert. And Judas speaks up in chapter 37. And Judas said to his brother, what profit is there if we kill our brother? What profit is it to kill our brother and cover up the blood? No, let's not do that. Let us sell us to the Ishmaelites. Chapter 37 of, of, of Breshid. Verse, I believe, 26. Let our hand not be against him. He's our brother, our own flesh. And the brothers heard. I would underline those words. Let our hands not be against him. What Judah is saying in effect, or what the Torah is saying, he's not Yishmael. Because Yishmael, it says here in verse number 12, the hand of all are against him. His hand is against all, says Judah to the brothers. You don't like Joseph? I don't like him either. But he's still our brother. So it's interesting how the Chumash later picks up pieces of this chapter. At the end of the day, Joseph is not to be cast out 
and excluded from the covenantal family. Quite the opposite. Joseph is part of the covenantal family. And one of the main foci in the Joseph story is how, how can Joseph be included in the covenantal family if the brothers disdain him? And that's one of the main themes of the end of this great book. And that's when Jacob comes into the picture and figures out a way to include Yosef. So this is, anyway, we'll get to these things later, but this verse number 12, I suggest, suggests strongly that from the covenantal standpoint, Yishmael is not gonna be covenantal child. Abraham loves Yishmael, no question, but he's not gonna be covenantal. Part of, part of the family, Abraham will be, we'll see next week, Avamon Goyim, the father of many nations, including Yishmael and those families, but he's not covenantal. Now we have in verse number 13, Hagar's response, which is very striking. Verse 13 and 14, not simple psukim. She said, or she called out the name of God, the God that was speaking to her. She said, very difficult verse, no doubt. The whole verse is difficult. The commentaries are discussing what it means and Rashi says, you are a seeing God. You are a seeing God. For she said, Ki amra, hagam halom ra'iti ro'i. So that's extremely difficult. For she said, hagam halom. So halom is taken by most of the commentaries to be in this place. Even in this place, even here in the desert, ra'iti, I have, I, I, I continue to see acharei ro'i, here they translate, after God saw me. The, the commentaries actually, the Medrash, takes it a little differently. Not, I have gone, I have seen God after God saw me, but the commentaries take it, maybe it's Midrashic, maybe it's the Pshat, that even here I continue to see. When I was in the house of Abraham, where angels were everyday guests, so I encountered God. But I didn't expect to encounter God in the desert. But the, but the seeing God, the God who has spoke to me, the seeing God, has allowed me to perceive God to see. That is what Hagar says in verse number 13. And she calls the place, Alkain Karola Be'er, she calls this the well, Be'er Lachai Ro'i. Didn't mention a well before, but she calls the well, apparently she's at a well, Be'er Lachai Ro'i. The well, of the chai was the one who was one who lives on, refers to the angel or God, the one who sees. We'll come back to Be'er Lachai Roi because it turns out that Yitzchok actually is present at Be'er Lachai Roi later on. But what is striking about the verses, coming back to what we saw earlier about Shur and Ayin and all that, that here we have the tremendous emphasis on the seeing. She named, she called the place, the place of the seeing God. And I have seen God, she says. So here we have to figure out how do we square that with what the angel said to Hagar, namely, Shema Hashem God has heard on Yech. And my point about Shema Hashem is that that is an extraordinarily unusual uh, term. I can't think of another place. I have to check it. 
you expect this, the Torah to say, it's always Ra'ah. But here it's Dafka Shama, and the name is Yishmael. It's not seeing. And it's funny is she names the place a place of seeing. But her son is not named seeing. Her son is named hearing. So we have to pay attention to that, what, what, what we make of that. It's a very good question. Devorah, my wife, when she wrote a book many years ago, I don't remember what she wrote about this, but she discusses this as a very central point about hearing versus seeing. There's no question that it's present. I think it's obviously present. The question is what to make of it over here. So we'll have to figure this out. And it's interesting to note that to name a place, a place of seeing is something we will encounter later on. Namely in chapter 22 in the binding of Isaac, the place is called where Abraham brings the sacrifice, Hashem Yireh, place that God sees, we'll see. So we'll come back to this business of God seeing and what seeing means in that context has more than one meaning in my view. We'll get to that later on. But in any event, here we have the story. So the outcome over here so far in this verse is Hagar runs away from Sarah. And when she runs away from Sarah, that effectively and through the conversations with the angel, effectively ends the possibility that this child born will be Sarah's child, which was Sarah's plan to begin with. So that's not going to happen because of Batekal, because of Abraham's setting that up in a sense, as Sarah sees it, and because of Sarah's Inuit. So we, everybody, the blame can be shared uh, amongst the three of them. But on the other hand, she will have a blessing. She will have a child and it will be Abraham's child. And, and let me just raise a question now. We'll continue with this next week. A simple question that the commentaries raise. When the angel speaks to Hagar, the angel said to Hagar, earlier, verse number 11 or 12, the angel said to Hagar, if you back it up a minute, said, Where's that verse? Yes, it is, verse 11. So the translation, the simple meaning of it, the translation we have here, Safari's translation, they're bothered by the problems. They try to behold you all with a child and will bear a son. But is taken typically to mean you will become pregnant and bear a son. But of course, the problem is she's already pregnant. That's that's how that's where the whole story begins. So what do we make of the construction? So we'll start with that next week. We'll finish this chapter rather quickly. And then we'll move to chapter 17, the chapter about circumcision and the covenant of circumcision, the changes of the names of Abraham and Sarah. We'll discuss that next week and the relationship between chapter 17 on one hand and chapter 15 on the other. That will be the main focus of next week's class. Thank you very much. Just as a, a general reminder that uh, this, we are now in the second week of our spring classes. We've got uh, a number of different classes, including Rabbi Silver's two classes on, on Tanakh, this one and his Wednesday evening session on King Solomon and his demons. We also have a number of other shirim throughout February and March focused on halakha in all of its different forms, theory of halakha, practice of halakha, 
the meaning behind it. So please go to drisha.org classes and uh, feel free to check out all of those offerings. Uh, thank you so much for being here.